0: You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at RedeemerFortBend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. There's this growing sense today. That humanity is skirting on the edge of disaster. That the end might not be too far away. After all, the scientists who managed the so-called doomsday clock decreed last week that we were just 90 seconds to midnight, the closest to global catastrophe it has ever been. If the end is coming, how should we prepare for it? Well, there's no shortage of answers to that question. One website says, quote, the rapture will be glorious, but what about our pets? Who will take care of our pets when we're gone? For a one-time $10 registration fee, you can have peace of mind. So prepare for the end by arranging rapture pet care. Or the false prophet of Mormonism urged Mormons that this is how they should, quote, prepare for the days of tribulation. Have sufficient food, clothing, and fuel on hand to last at least one year. So prepare for the end by hoarding. Or one online prophecy newsletter analyzes the headlines and assigns a numerical score indicating how quickly we are approaching the rapture. Points are assigned for various categories, ranging from plagues, famine, and Satanism to less obvious categories like interest rates and civil rights. So prepare for the end by scouring the headlines. There are lots of worldly ideas about how to prepare for the end. But this morning as we continue our study in Matthew's Gospel, we're going to see that the Lord Jesus indeed tells us the end is coming and He's going to tell us how to prepare for that end, how to be ready. And He isn't going to talk about rapture pet care or hoarding. We're scouring the headlines. He isn't even going to tell us. We need to figure out the exact sequence of all of the end times events described in the Bible. No. This morning, Jesus tells his people to prepare for the end by being about his business and redeeming the time that remains wisely. And that's what we're going to see today in Matthew chapter 24, verse 42, through chapter 25, verse 30. And today we're going to consider two points first is coming, so we'd better prepare for it. And second, we'll ask what does that preparation entail? Let's start with our first point. The end is coming, so we must prepare for it. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the fifth and final sermon of the Lord Jesus recorded in Matthew, which is called the Olivet Discourse, which is all about the shape of history. And last week, Jesus revealed that history will end with His return. But he said that the date of that cannot be known. All right, well, what are we to do with this information? Jesus tells us, look at verse 42, therefore, stay awake. Now, Jesus is now moving to the conclusion of his sermon, and here he gives his major application. As he says, therefore, in light of everything else he said so far in this chapter, here is what his disciples should do. They must stay awake. Well, what does he mean? Jesus worried they're going to sleep in? No. This Greek verb means something like be alert, be ready. The parallel in Mark 13 says be on guard. The idea is preparedness, vigilance. And this verb is an imperative. It's a command. Jesus commands his people to be ready. And this command is in the present tense. In Greek, the present tense indicates ongoing action. So Jesus is commanding a constant state of readiness. That is the proper response to what he has revealed about the end. That his original disciples and all everybody else who's followed him down through the ages, including those of us here today who know Jesus, we must live in such a way that we are always ready for the end. But why? Why is readiness the proper response to the truth about the end? Well, he tells us, look at verse 42. He says, For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Now, when you see this word for in the Bible, it's always going to give an explanation for what you just read. So here is why we always need to be ready. Because we don't know when Jesus is returning. Verse 36 says, No one knows the hour. Okay, you might say, I don't know when the end's going to happen, but why does that mean I need to be constantly vigilant? What is it about the end that requires me to keep alert? Well, Jesus is going to explain this now by telling a parable, which is a simple story that, when explained, reveals a profound truth because something in the story illustrates that truth. And Jesus now tells a parable to teach us why we've got to be ready for the end. Look at verse 43. Jesus says, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Jesus says our need for vigilance about the end is kind of like our need for vigilance to defend our property against a burglary. You know, when I was a kid our house got broken into. A thief had been watching it. Uh, He knew when my uh, parents took me to school. And so one day as I was getting dropped off, he came along and uh, took a knife and popped out the glass in the back door and, and he came and stole our VCR and a bunch of other stuff. It was really upsetting. I mean, it's unnerving when someone steps into your life like that and takes what's yours. But in the ancient world, burglary was an even more devastating threat. It could literally clean you out because back then... Most people didn't have their money in banks or in stocks. Right, Wealth wasn't just a bunch of numbers on a computer system. Everything they owned was tangible. Their life savings would be in coins that they had to stash in their house. So somebody burgled you. They could literally take everything you had accumulated throughout your whole life. That's a major threat. But you know, that threat isn't nearly so scary if the thief tells you when he's gonna come by. If he sticks a little note on your door and says, I'll be there at midnight, He wouldn't be a very good thief, would he? His chances of a successful heist go down significantly. He's going to get caught. Or here in Texas, he's going to get dead, right? In the real world, thieves aren't dumb like that. They don't tell you when they're coming. They want to come when you're not expecting them so they can take what they want and escape without consequence. So, because they didn't know when a thief was coming, ancient homeowners had to be constantly vigilant. In the same way, we need to have a constant vigilance at all times to protect ourselves from the threat of the end. Because it is coming like a thief. It is coming when we don't expect it. And if we're not prepared to meet it, then when it comes, we will face devastation. Like burglary in the ancient world, but a whole lot worse. It's going to cost us everything. And this truth that the return of Jesus is coming like a thief in the night was so powerful with early Christians that we, we find this language used again and again throughout the rest of the New Testament. Always explaining how the end will bring devastation upon the unwary. I'm just going to read one of these passages. Sarah read it earlier, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. The end is coming, and it's going to devastate the unprepared, those who think they're safe, those who think, oh, Jesus isn't coming back, those who think the system will keep things stable. In one moment, they're going to find it isn't true. Everything collapses around them. In a worse catastrophe than 9-11 or Katrina or Hiroshima? Friends, this is why readiness is essential. Because T.S. Eliot was wrong. The world doesn't end with a whimper. It ends with a bang. The end will be a time of sudden destruction for the unready. But those who are ready will avoid that fate. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.4, But you are not in darkness, brothers. For that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light. Children of the day. We're not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do. But let us keep awake and be sober. If We don't want to be devastated when the end comes. We've got to be ready. But this leads us to our second big point now. Which is what does readiness entail? To answer this question, Jesus now tells us three more parables. And each parable reveals a different aspect of readiness and unreadiness. We start with the first one. And here we learn that readiness means complying with the master's instructions while he is away. Look at verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, begins to beat his fellow servants, and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. At an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth." Now, here we have a household that belongs to a master, and he has many servants. And the master has to go away for a period of time, and so he entrusts everything to one of his servants while he's away. Now, Jesus invites us to consider two situations. First, let us suppose that while the master is away, this servant is consistently faithful to the duties that it had been put upon him. He's diligent to make sure the household is fed when it should be. He treats his fellow servants well. He does what he's been told. When the master comes back, what's going to happen? Well, he's going to be well rewarded, isn't he? But let's now consider the other situation. Let's suppose that while the master is away, the servant who is entrusted with the household behaves very differently. Oh, the master's gone. I can do what I want. Instead of feeding the household, he brings the party people over, and they eat the food, and they all get drunk together. Instead of treating his fellow servants well, he beats them up. He abuses his power. He totally disregards the master's instructions. When the master returns at an unexpected moment, what will happen? He's going to be severely penalized, right? We're going to talk about that more in a minute. But that's the parable. Now, what does this mean? Let's start by identifying the master. It's clearly Jesus here, right? Then just a few weeks after he said these words, Jesus is going to ascend back into heaven where he, will ret- where he will remain until he comes back to end history. Who are the servants? Well, some commentators say they're Christian leaders and that this is all about leading the local church. I think the point here is broader than that because this parable is one of a sequence all about being ready for the return of Christ. And it isn't only Christian leaders that need to be ready. So I think what's in view here is everybody, particularly everybody who claims to belong to Jesus. I think the servants here are people who claim to be believers, who claim to be Jesus' servants. Now, with those identifications, what can we learn? Number one, we see why God will not reveal to us the date of the end. If the master told the servants when he was coming back, what would happen? Well, consider first how this would impact the unfaithful servant. He's going to circle the date of the master's return, right? And he's going to be watching that calendar real close because he's going to be living it up real good until the date comes when the master's going to return, and then he's going to clean everything up and try to make it look respectable, right? He's going to try to avoid being caught and exposed in his sin. Now consider how this same knowledge might impact the faithful servant. Deprived of the uncertainty that helps keep him in check that the master might return today. The faithful servant might be tempted to fall into the behavior pattern of the unfaithful servant. But by not announcing the date of his return, the master puts his servants in the best situation possible for them to reveal their true character and relationship to him. And it ensures that his return will find them giving an honest display of who they really are when Jesus returns. His return will expose what is sincere and what is fraudulent because it could come at any moment. There was a saying in the early church that was attributed to Jesus. We don't know if he actually said it or not, but it went like this. In whatsoever I find you, in this I will also judge you. And I think there's wisdom in us having that same understanding. That whatever we are doing when Christ returns, the way that he finds us will reveal the sincerity or falsity of our profession of faith. That's certainly the impression made by this parable, isn't it? And make no mistake, faithful and obedient or unfaithful and disobedient while the master is away is ultimately a matter of having a true or false profession of faith. That's clearly seen here in the way the master says the faithful servant is blessed. At the end of chapter 25, Jesus will use this same language to describe those who really belong to him. As he receives them into glory with the words, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for for you from before the foundation of the world. But, in contrast, look at what happens to the unfaithful servant here. He's not just rebuked. He does not just lose some eternal rewards. No, the master cuts him into pieces. In the ancient world, masters could do this to their slaves. The master here could justly sentence this unfaithful servant to a horrible death. But that's not all. Because now the parable gives way to the spiritual reality that stands behind it. With a picture of final judgment and eternal condemnation. As the master says, the unfaithful servant should be put with the hypocrites. That doesn't make much sense if we read this parable in a hyper-literal way, does it? Because after you get cut into pieces... There isn't much more that can be done to you in this world, right? But what we see here is the unfaithful servant faces a fate worse than death as he is consigned with the hypocrites. A few weeks ago when Mason preached, he said this, and I thought it was really clear and really accurate. He said, hypocrisy is not saving faith. It will end in death. Friends, we've got to hear that warning today. In Matthew, when Jesus warns about the hypocrites, he's usually talking about the Pharisees what did Jesus say about them in Matthew 5? I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Hypocrisy does not inherit the kingdom because hypocrites have a pretend relationship with God and a pretend righteousness that isn't real. They lack what Hebrews 12 calls the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So their destiny is hell. And make no mistake, that's what Matthew's saying here when he speaks of weeping and gnashing of teeth. This phrase is used six times in this book. Always as the opposite of the fate of the righteous. Three times it's equated with a fiery furnace or eternal fire. And three times it's associated with the expression outer darkness. Friends, there is no ambiguity here. The faithless servant in this parable goes to hell. Just like everyone whose situation is represented by him. So what we see here is readiness for the end is a heaven or hell issue. Such that those who are ready for the end, those who, like the faithful servant, are characterized by faithful, obedient service while the master is away, will receive eternal rewards. But those who are unready, demonstrated in their self-indulgence while he's away, are sentenced to hell. Now this may make you uneasy. Because we believe the truth that man is saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and not by works. Friends, we should believe that. That's true. But we also need to learn, the Bible tells us, real faith produces some things in our lives. We often talk about the perseverance of the saints here. True faith perseveres to the end. That's not because perseverance is a salvific work. It's not like if we make it to the end of our lives and we're still in the faith that we earned our salvation. That's not it at all. No, the idea is true faith produces some things in the lives of believers, like perseverance, Hebrews 3.14. We've come to share in Christ if indeed we hold firm our original confidence to the end. Or think of good works in James 2. I will show you my faith by my works. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And now to this list we can add readiness for the end. True belief will generate readiness. And in this parable, readiness is defined as a life marked by obedience. Not perfect obedience, of course. We cannot attain sinless perfection in this life. We will sin. We, sometimes we can sin terribly. Sometimes we can be mired in sin for seasons. But friends, First John 2 says, By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. True belief is marked by a high view of God's word and a growing desire to live in line with it. And so as you look at your life right now, let me ask, which of these two servants do you more closely resemble? While Christ is away, are we living with an expectation that we might see him at any moment and give an account? Do we hold the things that he has commanded us to do in high regard? Do we tremble at his word and strive to obey it? Or do we say, well, I got plenty of time before I got to see him. I'll deal with it later. Just do more of what we want. Friend, if that is you, I beg you, do not be deceived. The servant who spends the time Jesus is away in self indulgent disobedience has no connection to him. And I'm talking about you today. I want you to know you can expect only wrath when he returns. But if we see that the grace of God is producing in us something else, a desire to love Jesus, to serve Jesus, to strive to obey Him even when we fail, then praise God because that evidence is that we truly know Him and that we will enjoy eternal rewards with Him forever. But we come now to the second parable. And here we learn that readiness means being prepared before it's too late. Look at chapter 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Now, Jesus says that when the kingdom comes in its fullness at the end, that is, when he returns, it will be like this second scene. And this is drawn from the world of ancient Jewish wedding customs. Now, typically, Jewish weddings would begin with ceremonies that took place at the bride's house, and these would last well into the night. And once they were done, then the groom would leave and he would lead a procession to his own house where there would be great feasting that would last for days. Now it's this nighttime procession that is the custom featured in our parable. This procession would typically be done by torchlight such that everyone connected to the wedding would carry a torch. And these torches are probably what is in view here as Jesus talks about these lamps. Now, our parable focuses on ten virgins, ten young ladies who were probably attendants to the bride. And we meet them outside the bride's house, waiting for the groom to make his appearance, waiting for him to begin this procession. But now we learn a critical detail about these girls. Look at verse 2. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. Now, to participate in the procession and be admitted into the feast afterwards, as a part of the wedding, you had to bring a torch. And you wouldn't bring a lit torch with you, because the ceremonies that would go on at the bride's house could take some time, and you didn't want your torch to, to run out of steam, right? So what you'd do is bring it disassembled. You'd bring a stick and a piece of cloth and a flask of oil. And only when the time came for the procession to begin would you douse the cloth in oil, wrap it around the stick, and light it up, and then you'd have a real nice torch. Now, all ten of these girls have brought the torch disassembled like they were supposed to, but half of them have forgotten to bring the oil. When the time comes, they're not going to be able to really light their torches. But we're jumping ahead a little bit, because the next thing Jesus says is this. Look at verse 5. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. For some reason, things are held up. The groom is away much longer than usual, and while he is delayed, these ten girls all sleep. But then suddenly, verse 6 at midnight, there was a cry Here is the bridegroom! Come out to meet him. The signal's given. The groom is here. It's time to light the torches and march in the procession. Verse 7, then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. They girls assemble their torches and prepare to light them. There's just one problem. Only now, at this last possible minute, do the five foolish virgins realize they have no oil. Their torches really aren't usable. Verse 8, the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you... Go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. The foolish plead with the wise for help, but this problem is not something that can be solved by sharing the available oil. And that's not because the wise virgins are mean, it's because they've brought only enough for themselves. If they share, then their torches also will fail to be usable. So they tell the foolish girls to to go off and find a salesman if you need some oil. Now at this point, it's midnight. It's going to be tough to find somebody still open, right? But the foolish virgins go off to try. Meanwhile, verse 10. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. While the foolish virgins are away, the procession happens. All those with torches are admitted to the banquet and the door is shut. No one else may enter because anybody who was not a part of that procession would be viewed as an interloper. If they'd really belonged to the wedding, they would have marched in the procession. So by the time the foolish virgins show up, it's too late. The bridegroom says, I don't know who you are. He can't discern that they have any legitimate connection to him or to the banquet. So he shuts them out. Jesus ends this by reiterating his main point. Look at verse 13. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. That's the parable. What does it mean? Well, the bridegroom here is clearly, again, Jesus. There's many reasons to make this association. Chapter 9, Jesus speaks of himself as a bridegroom. Chapter 22, there's a parable about God's son being married at a banquet like this. And again, here we're told the groom stays away for a long time and then returns and that his return is analogous to the coming of the kingdom in its fullness. Clearly, the groom is Jesus. What about the virgins? Well, I'll talk about them more in a minute, or about this more in a minute, but the parable ends with a really clear reference to something Jesus said back in chapter 7, in a frightful picture that depicts a final judgment. So I think that the virgins here are all those who stand before Jesus for final judgment, especially those who think that they have a connection to him. The wise virgins are those who indeed have repentantly entrusted themselves to Jesus and who will be admitted to the Messianic banquet, while the foolish virgins are those who have deceived themselves into thinking they had a real connection with Jesus but who actually don't and who are excluded from glory. What about the oil? I've heard many interpretations of this passage that put great weight on the oil having symbolic meaning. Because often in the the Bible, oil is a symbolic representation for the Holy Spirit. I would caution against saying that has to be what this is uh, in this case. First, because Jesus doesn't make that identification clear. And second, because the oil here is something supplied by the virgins, not the groom. Either they packed it or they bought it. I don't think that corresponds well to our theology of the Spirit. And I would remind you here that the parables are not allegories. Not every detail in every parable has a one-to-one symbolic connection with some theological concept. Sometimes they're just details in the parables that help get the story where Jesus wants it to go, to make his point. And I think that's what the oil is doing here. Now, what should we take from this? What differentiates the wise from the foolish? Really, it's just one thing. The wise virgins were prepared in advance to meet the groom and the foolish were not. Now, while we are aware of this critical difference from the beginning of the story, the girls themselves are not. So they all act the same way together at the beginning. In verse 5, when the prepared virgins sleep, knowing that they're ready for the master, the unprepared sleep too, because they think they are as well, unaware that they really aren't. They only discover that there is this difference between them at the last possible moment. Only when the groom arrives. Now, what does their readiness or unreadiness in this parable correspond to in our world? Well, I think the key to understanding this parable is found in verses 11 and 12. As the foolish virgins plead to be admitted to the banquet, saying, Lord, Lord, and the bridegroom shuts them out, saying, I do not know you. I mean, that is a clear reference to what Jesus said back in chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Here at the final judgment, we find people who think they're believers hold some correct theology. After all, they call Jesus Lord, and yet they don't enter the kingdom. So they protest because they say, well, we've done all these great works, and Jesus doesn't dispute that. And yet he insists he doesn't know them. They're not really his because only the one who does the will of the Father will enter the kingdom of heaven. And what is the Father's will? Well, throughout Matthew, we've seen the will of the Father. In the message preached by first John the Baptist, and then by Jesus, and then by the disciples. And that message is, repent, <coughs> for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king has come. Turn away from our old lives of sin. Turn to the king in faith. Jesus said in John six twenty nine, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Friends, we've all got to turn off the broad road that leads to destruction the road of our old sin, we've got to turn away to the narrow road that leads to life. That is, we've got to turn to Jesus in faith. But the Bible's clear that there is something that superficially looks like faith, but which really isn't. Yes, these guys seem to have some right theology, but they never really turned to Jesus. They never really turned away from their old lives. They call Jesus Lord, but they never really submitted to Jesus' rulership over them. Their lives are bereft of real fruit. And instead, bear the false fruit of unrepentant sin and hypocrisy. And so, they show their profession of faith to be false. They have merely pseudo faith. And by the time they realize the danger they're in, it's too late. Friend, the moment that it will be clearest to us that we need to belong to Jesus is the moment when it is too late. Because it will be when we see Him with our own eyes. When we stand before him for judgment, either because we've died or because we've lived until the end, and friends, when we stand before Jesus for judgment, it's too late then to repent and believe. We need to prepare now. The groom is coming. The end is coming. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus is God and man. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead. Salvation is available only by God's grace through repentant faith in Him alone. Believe in Jesus and live. Or one day, you will find out tragically that it's too late. If you know that you've never come to Christ, don't make the mistake of frittering your time away like the foolish virgins do here. You know, in the first parable, unreadiness was all about exploiting the time that Jesus is away with self-indulgence. Here it's different. Here, unreadiness is... It's about wasting the gift of time that God has given to you to repent. Friend, I plead with you, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. But now we come to our last point, the last parable. And here we see that readiness means redeeming the time wisely by serving the king, seeking to get a return on his investment in us. Look at verse 14. Jesus says, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Now once more we have a wealthy figure with servants who is going away. Of course, this is Jesus again. And once more he entrusts his property to his servants. Verse 15. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. Now, this word talent is a reference to a unit of currency in the ancient world. And it was a really large unit of currency. It was valued at 6,000 denarii. And a denarius was the amount paid to a laborer for one day of work. And on that basis, we might say that in our world today, a talent would be about a million bucks, almost exactly. And what we discover here is that as this wealthy man is leaving, he has eight talents that he wants to put to use while he's away. So he entrusts his servants with this giant sum of money. Now, this is not a gift. We're going to see in just a minute. He intends them to use this money in a particular way. But first, let's see how he distributes it. He doesn't distribute the money equally because he knows his people. He knows their ability to manage money. And so he distributes accordingly. The one he trusts the most gets five. The one he trusts the least gets one And the one in the middle gets two. And then the master splits. Verse 16. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them. And he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. Here we see what the master intended. The servants were to use this money in business. They were to get him a return on his investment. The first two servants do just that. They take what's been given to them. They use it. Diligently they use it. They go at once to tend to this business. They use it dutifully. They work hard. And the result is they both get a great return. They both double their master's money. But look at verse 18. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now that might seem odd to us. Why would he do that? Well, in the ancient world, this was a common way people tried to secure Large sums of money against theft, burying it in the ground. All right, so what happens? Verse 19. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. Finally, the master returns. And notice that in all of these parables, Jesus is saying things like, He's going to be gone a long time. He's signaling to his disciples. This period in which he's going to be away is not going to be brief. It's not going to be just like one generation. It's going to be a lengthy delay. But Jesus will return. And now we come to the part of the story analogous to the final judgment. As the master settles his accounts. Look at verse 20. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. He presents the money he was given and the profit he made. He redeemed the time wisely. He used the master's investment well, and so the master rewards him. Verse 21, his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master." The master commends this servant on his excellent performance, his diligence, his faithfulness, and there's a great reward. We'll say more about that in a minute. Now the second servant is evaluated. Verse 22. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents here. I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, this second servant made considerably less money than the first. But notice, they're both commended in exactly the same language. The master isn't only evaluating the size of the result here. He's evaluating the faithfulness and diligence of the servants. And the master shows his judgment is not unreasonable. He knows the second servant made less money because he was given a smaller initial investment. The master doesn't hold that against him. That was the master's choice. And the master's pleased with the second servant's efforts and rewards him, just like the first. But now we come to the third servant. Look at verse 24. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what's yours. The servant gives the master the one talent that he had hidden in the ground. He'd managed to secure it against theft, you know. There's just one problem. That wasn't the task. The task was to get a return on the master's investment. But the servant says he was afraid to try at that task because... The master always turns a profit in every situation. He may not do the sowing, but he sure reaps. He may not do the scattering, but he sure gathers. And on top of that, he says, Master, you're a hard man. You're impossible to please. And you're just so harsh. So he says, I didn't try because I was afraid I'd fail and I didn't want to get punished. Now, what does the master think about this attitude? Because he immediately exposes it as a lie. Look at verse 26. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. And you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. This third servant really believed what he was saying that the master was this harsh figure who insisted on successful profit. Why didn't the servant do something about it? There was an easy option available to him. He could have taken the talent to the money lenders. You know, most common people back then didn't do any banking. But if you had a talent, you better believe the money changers would have taken that off your hands and given you interest. That would have been a really easy way to make some money and kick your feet back and relax until the master showed up. But this servant didn't do that. Because all this stuff about him being afraid because the master is a hard man is just a lie. It's an excuse. The truth is, servant number three is lazy. He is disloyal. He doesn't love his master and he doesn't want to obey. And he was unbelieving because he had no faith in the master's plan. That if he took the money and really used it, he would get a good return. He wasn't diligent. He wasn't faithful. So now there's consequences. First, look at verse 28. The master says, So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. The master strips servant number three of the talent that was given to him and reassigns it to the servant that made the largest profit. And here Jesus quotes himself from back in chapter 13, verse 12. There's a spiritual principle at work here. Friends, in the end, those who know God and love God are going to gain more and more. But those who don't are going to lose everything, even whatever meager spiritual insight they had at the start. So the third servant loses what he had. But that's not all. A worse consequence awaits him. While the first servant, who did so well, actually winds up now in a better position. He gets more money to manage But let's see now the last part of this unfaithful servant's punishment. A terrible consequence awaits. Look at verse 30. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, the parable gives way to the reality it depicts. And just like at the end of chapter 24, this is unmistakably speaking about hell. This is the ultimate fate of the worthless servant and those he represents. Now that's the parable. How should we understand it? Well, once more we see Jesus judging, and as in the other parables, we see true believers here who are invited to enter the Master's joy, and we see those making a false profession of faith who initially seem to have some connection to Jesus, which is ultimately revealed to be deficient and false, and who end in hell. Now, I want us to consider two things here. First, what is the substantive difference between the rewarded servants and the condemned servant. The rewarded servants are marked by their faithful and diligent service. They attend to what the master gave them to do. They labor to get a return on the investment that was entrusted to them. And so they are ready when he returns. But the condemned servant, lazily and disloyally, will not attend to the task, and he is unready. Now, what is this talking about? To be sure, Jesus has not suddenly started preaching works salvation. This parable is not teaching that the cause of salvation is our own personal diligence or our faithfulness. No, this is showing that those who have a real connection to Jesus, who love him and belong to him, will be about his business with seriousness and diligence. Works don't save us, but saved people work. We will redeem the time that Jesus is away By doing our best to get some return for Him from what He has entrusted to us, if we really know Him. And friends, what has Jesus entrusted to us? Well, He's given us His gospel to proclaim to the nations and to our neighbors. He's given us His Spirit to empower our service. He's given us the community of the local church and spiritual gifts to build up that church. But, you know, even for unbelievers, we can say that God has given in His common grace some serious gifts, natural aptitudes and talents that everybody has. All of our circumstances, the places we live and the jobs we have and the friends and family that we get. He's given us every good thing that we enjoy. Our homes, our cars, our money, our leisure. Jesus has made a significant investment in all of us. And the question is, What are we doing with it while he's away? Do we leverage our lives and our possessions and our relationships in service to him? Are we proclaiming the gospel to any lost people? And I'm not talking here about going to Africa, although we could do that. But what about in your family? If you're married, have you evangelized your spouse or your kids? That's your primary mission field. You're looking for evangelism. That's where you should start. And then what about your extended family or your coworkers, or your neighbors? I think a lot of people are afraid, just like servant number three is, oh, I don't want to fail. Man, I think this parable is a warning against that kind of mindset. But what about not just evangelism, what about service in the church? Are you invested in anybody else's life here? It doesn't take much time to sit down with somebody and pray with them or to read a few verses together and talk about them. But 1 Thessalonians 5 says admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, always seek to do good to one another. Is there anybody here that you are admonishing or encouraging or helping or doing good to? Are you serving in any way here? He said, I'm afraid of people. Okay, well, again, I'm a little uncomfortable about that from this parable. But let me ask you this. Do you help clean the building? Do you help do anything here? Or even outside the church, are you doing anything good at all in your life? I mean, that's a lot of questions I just asked. I hope you can answer yes truthfully to at least one of them. Because this parable tells us real faith will demonstrate itself by generating at least some diligent service for the Lord in our lives. Is that true of you? Or are you like the unprofitable servant? Oh, you've got lots of excuses why you don't do anything for Christ. But man, it looks like Jesus here is saying to you, it's actually an excuse. It's really because you have a low view of God. Because you have little love for Jesus and a lot of laziness. Please be honest with yourself and with the Lord today. Which of these two servants does your life look like? Which one stands for you in this story? Jesus said back in chapter 5, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Friends, our lives should glorify God by the works we do. We are not to hide the master's investment in us in the ground. We are not to hide our light under a basket And if we're doing that, we need to ask right now, what does that say about me and my claim to faith? A lack of any service shows that we aren't ready for the end, and that means when it comes, we should anticipate catastrophe. But true, diligent, faithful service indicates that we are ready for the end and that we are in line for rewards. And that's the second thing I want to call your attention to here. Look at the reward language we find in all of these parables. The prospect of immense goodness and kindness demonstrated to the person who really knows Christ. Friends, heaven isn't the thing you see on TV and cartoons. People floating around on clouds and plucking harps. No. The rewards we see in today's passage say that believers will be entrusted with even more glorious and important responsibilities in eternity. Friends, we will have jobs in heaven. Duties commensurate with the diligence and faithfulness we show in this life. So, believing, friend, run the race well. Run to win because you love Jesus, and run because incredible rewards await. But to conclude, I think we've seen today that true faith produces a readiness that will survive the end, and false faith produces an unreadiness that will not stand in the judgment, as Psalm 1 says. And we've seen today what readiness looks like and what unreadiness looks like. So, again, I just ask you to look at your life. If you are marked by a constant self-indulgence and disobedience, a lack of urgency in thinking about your own spiritual condition or spiritual things, disloyalty to God, or just laziness about spiritual matters, I warn you, this text gives you no reason to imagine that you have a real relationship with God and no reason to imagine that you will survive the final judgment. If that is you, I call on you today turn to Christ and live. But, I pray today that instead, as we look at ourselves, we would see signs that show that we really do know Jesus, signs of true readiness, of growing obedience, of urgently attending to our spiritual lives while we have the time to do so, and of diligent faithfulness in our service to Christ. And if that's true of us, then in the end, we can expect to hear those most glorious words of commendation, well done, good and faithful servant. May that be said of each of us.